Hello, beloved listeners. This is Volts for November 2nd, 2022. Coal plants are still getting financed despite pledges otherwise. I am your host, David Roberts. Here at Volts, I have done fairly extensive coverage of the U.S. coal industry and its woes. Most listeners probably know the basic story. In the U.S., coal is on the way out, initially because of cheap natural gas, but now because of the whole suite of inexpensive clean power technologies. But the global coal fleet is a different matter. Coal is still growing across Asia, still getting funded, despite all the headlines from the last five years about countries and institutions getting out of the business of coal financing. It's a bit of a paradox. It's difficult to find a major financial institution or government that is willing to be openly associated with coal, but somehow coal plants are still getting financed. How is that? Well, it turns out it has to do with some fairly fine distinctions among different kinds of financing and how they are tracked. A new report from Global Energy Monitor, Opacity and Accountability, the hidden financial pipelines supporting new coal, digs into this question. To explore the subject, I got in touch with Ted Nace, Executive Director of Global Energy Monitor, and Patty McCulley, Executive Director of Reclaim Finance. We talked about where the money to build coal plants is coming from, which sources are and aren't being cut off, and the next steps for anti-coal activism. All right, then, uh, with no further ado, Ted Nace and Patty McCulley, welcome to Volts, and thank you for coming. Great to be here. Thanks, Steve. We're going to talk about coal. Specifically, we're going to talk about the global coal fleet, uh, how it's doing and how it is sustaining itself and how it is getting money. But, you know, I want to ask a few questions just about the coal fleet in general first to help people uh, kind of wrap their heads around what's going on. I think I and I think Volt's listeners at this point are very familiar with the sort of U.S. coal story, which is, you know, fairly rapid decline and almost certain uh, obsolescence in a few years. But the global story is different. So, so maybe, Ted, you could start just by telling us sort of, I just want to know a couple of very basic things about the coal fleet. Like, for instance, sort of like how, how much global power still comes from coal and is the global coal fleet currently growing or shrinking? Yeah. So in 2021, uh, 37% of electricity came from coal. Huh. Still globally, huh? That's disheartening. Yeah. So it's, it's way ahead of gas. Gas is 23%. And then you go down from there. And so coal is very important. And uh, it's particularly important. Everybody knows in China, in Asia, mm-hmm. and, and it's growing in those, in those regions. One really easy way to think about coal is that there are two fleets. There's the OECD fleet, which mm-hmm. are older plants. They're on the average you know, way up there toward retirement age, if not beyond. Right. One of the reasons it's been pretty easy to get the U.S. coal fleet retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't build coal plants for a really long time, and so now they're very old. And a lot of them want to retire anyway. They're just super old. And, and the non-OECD coal fleet 
uh, were mostly built since 2000. So mm. half of that is in China, pretty new plants. One thing that's kind of interesting is when you think about uh, industrial projects that have ever happened, the building of the Chinese coal fleet is arguably the largest industrial project in economic history. Yeah, pretty spectacular. You look at those graphs of coal in China in the 2000 to 2010 years, it is mind-boggling. It's like straight, the line goes straight up. Yeah. So is the is the growth in non-OECD countries fast enough that it is compensating for, for the retirements in the OECD fleet? Like is the whole, which is happening faster? Yeah, so half of the, the ship is sinking while the other half is rising. Right, um, right. So at this point, uh, the retirements have caught up and surpassed the new plants everywhere except China. So if you look at the world without China, it's been in decline for the last five years. Interesting. Now, even with China in the picture, this probably is the last year that the fleet will grow because retirements are are inching ahead every year a little bit more. And, the, and, and even China has slowed down substantially in building coal plants. So probably 2023 will be the first year that the, the global coal fleet starts to shrink. Ah, interesting. We're living through peak coal plant. I think everybody would like to see uh, the decline much faster. And of course, uh, you know, Volt's listeners and you guys are familiar with what the IPCC says about this and what, you know, the IPCC and at this point, numerous other <laughs> research and advocacy organizations are saying, which is if we want to hit our 1.5 degree C climate target, basically no new coal can be built and the existing coal fleet needs to retire rapidly. That's There's basically no way around that. Coal's the biggest emitter, it's the biggest target. But that doesn't seem to be happening. And so, you know, in your report, you sort of refer to this as a paradox, which is it seems like, you know, for someone like me who's just sort of like glancing at the headlines, I'm constantly seeing like this country or this institution swearing off coal, you know, um, no more coal for us. We're not going to fund any more coal. It's everywhere. And yet, somehow, there's a bunch of coal plants being built. <laughs> there's a bunch of coal plants being financed and built. So let's talk a little bit about that paradox. You say in the report, quote, support for coal arrives through a variety of financial pipes. And for the era of coal to come to an end, all these pipes must be closed. So Patty, maybe you can jump in here. And I want to talk first about which pipes have been closed. Like, let's talk about the good news uh, yeah. for a little bit first. Like, what sources of funding for coal have dried up? Yeah. So there's, uh, let's say, two main pipes. There's a public finance pipe, so money coming from governments, and then there's a private finance pipe. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the private finance, it's a mix between banks that are making loans and are also underwriting new issuances of, uh, of bonds and shares uh, for private companies. And then there's the investors of various types, the big asset owners like pension funds and insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And then also these big asset managers like uh, BlackRock and Vanguard and Fidelity, which own you know huge amounts of the, uh, the world's economy. And <laughs> they are all 
taking decisions to you know finance coal or not and then the other player which is uh, a little different than the rest but in many ways even more important is the insurance industry mm. which plays these two roles one the insurance industry is a massive asset owner because it's sitting on all the money from our premiums but also it insures the world and without insurance big projects can't go ahead they can't get bank loans and so on so basically what's been happening in the world of private finance over the last decade, but accelerating over the last, say, five years and continuing to accelerate since then is increasingly private, especially Western, especially European private financial institutions have been cutting down on their support for coal. And the most interesting place we see that is in, in the insurance industry, where now the numbers are pretty pretty remarkable. There's a, a report that just came out from my organization and a, a bunch of allies showing that now 40% of the primary insurance market worldwide is now like closed off for coal plants. Mm. Um, again, it's a it's a story of China and the rest of the world, but it's it, it's basically meaning that it's getting pretty difficult to insure a new coal plant or even an existing coal plant outside of China. And e- even more remarkable is, you know, there's this, product of, of reinsurance, which are the reinsurers of these huge companies, which insure the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And when you look at world reinsurance, 62% of the market now has either withdrawn or reduced their coal coverage. So there are positive signs there. And then on the public side, you know, that's also been very important in coal plants and their similar trend has been going on there. And it's very, maybe one of the most positive recent things there was uh, last year, President Xi of China announced that they were not going to fund new coal plants overseas, and they mm. had become other government funders had dropped out of the uh, coal project financing. It was really yeah, all the OECD countries basically said we were not going to publicly finance any more coal plants, or is it just a hand? Like who has and hasn't spoken up? I don't believe there's any more public financing of coal plants, but there might be some minor player. Yeah, Ugh. but not anything substantial. All the major lenders, uh, public lenders, have have stopped. Right. So the big public support, big public money for coal plants is drying up, even now in China. What about? Um, well, that's not so much in China, but rather Chinese overseas. Oh, right. That's the that's the issue. The Chinese government is, you know, they're finishing up plants now, which they'd already, you know, signed the deals on. But as far as I've seen, there's basically no big new coal plants getting Chinese government money. Interesting. And what about private? You know, the report makes a, you know, draws this distinction between two kinds of private funding. Uh, so talk about those, like the one, you know, sort of um, specific project finance versus sort of general corporate support. So tell us like what that distinction means and kind of their relative sizes when it comes to funding coal. Right. So we did a report recently and we looked at uh, trying to figure out where the money was coming from, because as Patty said, these very important sources have dried up and yet a lot of coal is still being built. So who's paying for it? (laughs) The paradox in question. The answer to that is there's been about uh, $850 billion spent on building coal plants in the last decade. About a fifth of that is covered by government explicit loans to a coal project. They call it project finance. Right. So that kind of explicit lending is more and more uh, disallowed. It's more more excluded by these policies, including by many private banks. 
Patty's organization tracks that very closely, and he can tell you more about that. But the problem is that that private piece of the of the eight hundred and fifty billion that is earmarked for a particular project, for a particular coal plant or a mine, is only a fifth of the of the dollars. The other four fifths of the dollars goes to you know loans or bonds, goes to companies without it explicitly saying it's for a coal plant. Uh, so this would be like a big bank giving a company just a general loan or underwriting a company, and then the company separately builds a coal plant. Yeah, and we call that bottom line financing. It comes. It could be the company's own retained earnings, or it could be money that they raised through bonds or, or from loans. But that's how they're building the coal plants. <laughs> uh, and that is what has not been stopped. This sort of general uh, corporate funding. So... If activists want to stop this, well, let's talk about <laughs> what's called in the report the dilemma of financial opacity. <laughs> so, Patty, like, say I'm an activist and I want to go kind of figure out who's doing this. Like, where is the money coming that ends up funding this coal plant? It's not that easy to figure out. Why is that? I think it's pretty astonishingly difficult to figure out, actually. And I think, Ted, you had this experience writing this report in terms of, you know, looking under the hood, trying to find where the money was and realizing it's so complicated to actually find it. So as my, my own organization, Reclaim Finance, publishes a lot of reports. And we have a, a small team of analysts that is working with finance industry databases. I mean, the, the big one is the Bloomberg, um, but there's also a bunch of others, and we get in there. You know, they're very expensive. You need uh, you know tens of thousands of dollars to pay for subscriptions, but we get in there and dig down and find as much information as we can. Um, but even paying lots of money for <laughs> the finance industry's own databases, definite that there's a lot of deals that are not reported there and that we're missing. But I think we can find most of the money. And we have a colleague organization in, in Germany called Urgewalt, and they published an excellent, uh, really terrific resource called the Global Coal Exit List, which is this huge list of like well over a thousand coal companies around the world, miners and power plant developers mm -hmm. and terminal builders and so on. Uh, and they also research, we work with them on, on researching who is financing all these projects. So you can go to the Global Coal Exit List and you can find information there about who is financing them. Um, there's also an excellent resource that uh, ourselves and Rainforest Action Network and uh, Sierra Club and others do on banking called uh, a Banking on Climate Chaos. And it, it looks at oil and gas and coal financing. And so there's a lot of information there and who's putting money into coal. But if you're just regular Joe trying to figure out who's financing a particular project, it's, uh, it's very difficult to get the information. And is that deliberate? <laughs> I mean, are it, because you know, cold sort of like frowned upon now, and uh, I imagine a lot of the people making these deals would rather them not come under public scrutiny. Or is it just sort of an opacity that's yeah, built up over time anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just inherent to the financial sector. I mean, financial institutions don't like people looking in closely at what they're doing. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's particular that this is cool. I mean, I, I just had an experience, just as an example, I was on a call with a couple of colleagues last week and we were sharing some of our recent data that we'd found with them um, in terms of their financing of coal, oil and gas expansion. But anyway, they were just <laughs> outraged that we had any information on what they were doing. And their main <laughs> sort of point of the call was not to 
go through with a fine tooth comb what we had said and sort of quibble about this deal or that deal, but just to, you know, say, how did you get this information? We don't publish this information. How did you get it? <laughs> so if I could summarize sort of the problem here with financing the global coal fleet is that you've got governments, a lot of big banks, a lot of big insurance companies saying we will not be involved in specific project financing for coal. We will not finance coal plants. But there's still financing basically companies that then go and build coal plants. So it's sort of, uh, they're still financing coal plants at a remove, basically. Exactly. I mean, Ted was saying earlier that it's about 20% of the money for coal that is that is coming from project specific finance right. that's the number over the last like decade but that's gone steadily down over the last decade so it's pretty negligible right right now it's almost all now corporate finance and that's partly i mean there's different reasons for that but i would certainly like to think it's partly because of the work that campaigners have done <laughs> to right. stop that type of finance and so we, we've counted 65 now private financial institutions that have strong policies on project finance for coal together with well that includes insurance companies you know is sort of closing off that pipeline which was always the less important part but still important but now that seems like that's almost disappeared it seems like i mean to put a positive spin on it i mean the sort of global fight against coal has made it such that Big institutions don't want to be explicitly <laughs> yeah. tied to it, right? I mean, that's yeah, a, yeah. that's not a small thing for uh, you know socially and culturally. But as you say, that's a sliver of the financing, and it seems to me if I'm a big bank or something, this is kind of I'm kind of in the catbird seat here. This is kind of perfect for me. I can theatrically disavow coal, <laughs> exactly, right, and say I'm not going to finance any coal plants. But then I can go right on financing these companies yeah that are building coal plants i can go right on with my business yeah that's exactly right we produce a thing called the coal policy tool we track policies from hundreds of different financial institutions and we rank them on different criteria and the reason we do that is because there are so many potential loopholes with financial yeah. institution policies and so they come out with yeah great announcement we're not financing coal projects anymore and, you know, they get written up in the Financial Times or Bloomberg and everybody thinks, oh, great, they're not financing coal projects. And then you realize they hadn't actually financed any for, you know, the last five years, <laughs> but they're still giving hundreds of millions of dollars to coal companies. So um, you got to really be careful with those policies. When I think about, um, you know, the sort of corporate finance, these companies that are getting financed by banks and then turning around and building coal plants, are these coal companies or are these larger companies for which coal plants are kind of one thing they do like i guess I, one of the things i want to try to get my head around is it seems to me um you know for a bank saying no more project financing is relatively easy and a relatively small step but saying we're not going to do any business with any companies that are have anything to do with building coal mines or coal plants is a much bigger step <laughs> yeah Dave, you should come and work with Reclaim Finance and uh, be a coal uh, policy analyst because this is exactly the stuff that we deal with on a daily basis is does the policy only apply to projects or does it apply to corporate finance? And then 
how do you define a core company? And that's a key thing. And what, what, one of the criteria that we rank core companies are is just like, what is their threshold in terms of, for example, revenue from coal? So some coal policies only define coal companies as companies which have over 50% of the revenue from coal. Mm. Some of them are 5%. So that will include mm. a lot of different companies. Yeah. Intuitively, it seems like the pool of companies that get 50% of their revenue from coal is going to be relatively small, yeah. but it seems like there would be a much bigger pool exactly. that get 5 to 10%. And it includes some really big companies. I mean, if you look at coal mining, you have companies like Glencore, these huge mining multinationals, and they mine copper and manganese and God knows what all, and coal. And they're actually one of the world's biggest coal producers, but it's just a you know, a minor part of their overall business. And Mitsubishi, right? Am I, am I making yeah. that up? <laughs> yeah, it's a power plant developer. Yeah. Right. So I guess what I want to try to figure out is I expect that activists are telling these banks, you know, when you rate their policies, you say, that's all fine and good. You've sworn off project finance. But what we want you to do is swear off dealing with any of these companies that deal with coal plants. Are there countries and or big financial institutions that have taken that extra step that have actually said, you know, beyond project finance, we're not going to loan or whatever deal with companies that are involved in coal? Yes, there are indeed. Um, I mean, going back to our coal policy tracker again, you know, I mentioned we have 65 financial institutions with strong project finance uh, policies, but we also we have 42 with strong corporate finance policies. So that that is happening and increasingly it's happening and the you know the trend definitely between 10 and 5 years ago was very much about getting project finance policies and right. now it is much more about getting corporate finance policies but it's very instructive you look at those 42 financial institutions they're almost all french uh, uh, and they're all european <laughs> apart from there's a desjardins in canada which is like a federation of credit unions so not a big funder ever of coal and axis which is a, a bermuda based insurer so a country you see not present in that list is uh, the united states of america and any of our yeah yeah and and <laughs> here's something that i think is you know, has to do with our expectations. You know, in in a capitalist economy, one of the basic expectations is disclosure because it is the private sector that's making these really big decisions that affect society yeah. and that affect investors. And that's why we require, you know, CEOs and, you know, CFOs to get on these regular calls and be grilled. <sighs> and we take it for granted, you know, that this is a necessary thing when it comes to, you know, following you know, where the dollars and cents are and making sure that in a fiduciary way, the companies are being straight up. Right. But somehow, you know, something that's even more important it doesn't seem to be taken for granted that it should be open and that everybody should have that information, you know. And so it's really in addition to, you know, how banks should act, it's how aggressive can we be as a society or should our governments be with these expectations? And I, you know, I would, I would argue that it should be totally aggressive. <laughs> So is it difficult then when we were looking at corporate finance as opposed to project finance, is it difficult to figure out who's doing that, like what banks are doing that, or is that public information? Well, uh, Urgvalt and together with a, a research uh, outfit called Profundo, they they tracked down a lot of this corporate money and they were able to identify the companies that it went to. And we know that those companies are building coal plants. So one of the things we did in our in our report that we recently released was we simply listed all the coal plants that are being built 
by those companies. Right. What we can't do is prove that this dollar went there. We can right. only say that those companies are building those plants. Right. So corporate finance goes to the company and then the company builds the coal plant, but you can't take a particular coal plant and say those corporate underwriting dollars were spent on this specific coal plant. Exactly. So is this sort of the nature of the kind of activist push right now to say to these big banks, hey, you said no more project financing, that's all well and good, but look, your corporate underwriting is resulting in all these plants, so cut that out too. Is that sort of like the the pitch now we're aiming at these banks? Yes, and it also goes to holding the banks accountable who are claiming to be climate leaders by belonging right. to United Nations organizations of climate leading, you know, of institutions. So it would be one thing if they didn't claim to also be climate leaders and belong, you know, and sit together uh, at the United Nations. Right. Um, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> So is it, I mean, specifically when we're talking about corporate underwriting, is it happening from banks that are out of the other side of their mouth bragging about their climate heroism? Like, are these one and the same banks, the climate quote unquote leaders and the corporate underwriters? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And just to follow up from that, I mean, you're, you're asking Dave about what we're demanding from the banks. Yes, absolutely. Quit your corporate finance for the coal industry, but it's also in particular Quit your corporate finance for the companies that are expanding coal. Like this is the mm. worst thing. The actual, the real disaster for the climate is there are still a lot of coal companies that have plans to build more projects. And so the very minimum that needs to be done is to pull the plug and finance to those companies and make it clear that there's not going to be any more finance for them until they ditch those coal plants and come up with plans to phase out their coal on the you know science-based timelines, which is basically 2030, end of this decade in the yeah. OECD, and then 2040 worldwide. Yeah. Well, in this sort of spirit, in the same area, talk a little bit about the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero <laughs> and the UN's Race to Zero and how those two things interact. <laughs> like what's, what's, uh, you mentioned that the UN's Race to Zero has certain criteria that countries have to sort of check off before they're allowed to be part of it. And those, you know, those criteria are, are strengthening. And so tell us a little bit about how those two organizations are interacting. Uh, this is, it's, um, it's complicated. This is complicated and causes me a lot of pain. Um, so several levels of this one is, yes, there is this UN calls itself a campaign, uh, thing called the race to zero, which comes under the UN climate convention. And it, mm -hmm. its idea is that it sets uh, criteria for non-state actors. So, you know, in the climate convention, it's all states that uh, right. countries that make commitments, but the UN will also quite rightly wants to have non-state actors of provinces and states and cities and financial institutions and companies and schools and hospitals, everybody else to make commitments. So that's the the point of race to zero. And so then it, it is the idea that like, if I'm a school or a company or whatever, I, I agree to these criteria. And then like, what do I get? Like, why would I want to be involved, you, involved in this? Do I just get good PR or, or what? Yeah, you get mentioned on their on their website. And you know, you can claim that you're affiliated or a partner with right. race to zero, and you look very good. And maybe it's helpful <laughs> in terms of you want to know, okay, what does it mean to align with net zero, you have their criteria to, right. to look at. And their criteria are pretty uh, stiff. Yeah, they've so they've been improving them over the last few years, and they they came up with an update in in June, 
And for the first time, they say that, you know, sort of at the core of their criteria is that you need to phase out fossil fuels, coal and oil and fossil gas on a, you know, a one and a half degree science-based timeline. So that's very, you know, that's what we need. And also it mentions the issue of expansion and says there should be no new investments in new coal, oil and gas projects. So that's, you know, that's very encouraging. And so after the race to zero was set up, then last year, last April, actually, this thing called GFANS, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, emerged, which is headed now. Its co-chairs are Michael Bloomberg and Mark Carney, who's a former Uh, Bank of Canada and Bank of England and now uh, works for a big investment firm in in Canada. And anyway, they sort of set up, to some extent, took over existing sectoral alliances off financial institutions. So there's an insurer alliance, an asset owner alliance, and a bank alliance, and so on. And then all those alliances, as part of their their sort of price of membership for GFANS, is that they say they will align with the race to zero. So because of all that, that means that basically there's now like 600 financial institutions in GFANS, and they claim basically 40% of the world's private capital is inside this alliance. So it's incredibly, theoretically, incredibly powerful uh, force in, in sort of inside world capitalism. And now that Race to Zero has strengthened their criteria, they all are theoretically committed to stop financing fossil fuel expansion and send a the signal they're going to phase out all fossil fuels. But yeah, uh, theoretically, are, <laughs> is that are they in fact... <laughs> Well, of course, uh, is not that simple. So there's a broad range. There's a there's actually seven sectoral alliances, and there's a, a lot of difference between the different sectoral alliances in terms of their levels of ambition. And each of the sectoral alliances has or is developing their own set of criteria, which are aligned to the race to zero to varying extents. Um, So it's very inconsistent. And certainly there's a lot of financial institutions inside GFANS that were not at all happy when they suddenly realized they had to comply with these new race to zero criteria. Are they going to just blow off the race to zero? Well, or are they going to tighten their ship to stay involved? That that's a very good question. I think some of them, uh, some of them are moving in the direction of complying with the race to zero. And there are some big financial institutions which are swearing off financing a fossil fuel expansion. But of course, there are many that aren't. And the big thing that's happened, you know, just really over the last few weeks is intensified is that <laughs> tragically enough, um, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, GFANS has got dragged into our abysmal cultural wars and a bunch of red states are threatening uh, financial institutions which have joined GFANS. And uh, just yesterday, the Attorney General of Missouri put out a letter to all the six big US banks demanding all their information about why they joined the Net Zero Banking Alliance and Uh, who inside the banks signed up and what commitments have they made and accusing them of, you know, siding woke financial <laughs> capitalism against the hardworking people of America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are the big U.S. banks involved in, in GFANS? Are they- yeah, all the big banks are members of this Net Zero Banking Alliance, which means they're also members of GFANS for now, but there have been rumblings of them wanting to quit 
partly because they're terrified of these red state attorney generals coming out. Interesting. So if I'm in GFANS, on one hand, on the one side of me, I have the UN's race to zero pushing me to tighten my criteria. And on the other side of me, I have lunatic red state (laughs) (laughs) attorneys general threatening me legally if I even maintain the criteria I've got currently. Exactly. Wow. What a mess. So, I I mean, maybe this is not an answerable question, but like which of those sides is more powerful? Like which which do banks fear more? Well, we'll see. Um, (laughs) I think there's different levels of commitment. I think JP Morgan, for example, has never seemed, it was late to come in to the Net Zero Banking Alliance and it has never seemed particularly happy to be there. And as far as I can tell, it's not currently making any clear commitments to staying. So it would not be too terribly surprising if they were to say, sorry, guys, we were never really serious and, and now we're out of here. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that Jamie Dimon, you know, CEO of JP Morgan, was in front of the congressional committee a couple of weeks ago and said that the U.S. would be hell if we did not finance more oil and gas. I think you <laughs> Yeah, that was <laughs> particularly obnoxious. Yeah. I, I, I saw that. Pretty clear uh, what direction he wants to head. Um, <laughs> for the other ones, I think hard to say, you know, like City and Morgan Stanley were both founder members of the Banking Alliance. Maybe they want to stay. But I think regardless, they are going to act as much more if they stay on the inside, the concern is they're really going to put the brakes on in terms of mm. uh, raising ambition. They're going to fight inside the alliance to really slow things down and really make sure that nothing is binding upon them and everything is just you know best practice and uh, nice to do rather than you actually should or must do. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Ted, tell me what the sort of uh, state-of-the-art, best-in-class coal commitment from a financial institution looks like? Like, what is the, um, what's the ideal here? And has anybody reached it? In our report, we picked uh, Credit Agricole. Patty may may be able to say more about, you know, because he's, uh, I call these people who really know this topic, I call them the sappers, you know, the, the guys who go to the unexploded bomb and instead of running away from it, they go toward it. And then they go in there with their tweezers and they try to find where the wires are. And, uh, so much of this is in the detail. So one of the most fabulous efforts along these lines is this thing called the coal policy tool uh, that Reclaim Finance has done. And what they've done is they've parsed the policies into five or six categories. Mm. And for each one, they've teased apart the language and been able to rate it on a scale of zero to 10. Because it really is, I think the name of the game, You know, if, if I were a bank executive, I'd be trying to make everybody happy. You know, I'd be trying to be, I'd be trying to stay on GFANS, and I'd be trying to avoid yeah. the Attorney General of Texas or Missouri. Exactly, and that's done by squirrely language and <laughs> commitments that sound good, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and I, you know, in so much of this world that we live in around climate, which seems to have devolved to voluntary commitments, yeah, so much of that is about how well you can sound instead of how good you can do. But anyway, there are these banks in in France who are probably the best at actually. Is there an explanation for why all the good ones are in France? What's 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 going on there? What do you think, Patty? <laughs> Easy answer is my organization is based in Paris, and we. Uh, <laughs> you struck terror into their hearts. <laughs> it's not uh, quite as simple as that. Um, I think that there are reasons such as France has not really had a 
important coal industry for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so it's really the connections between, you know, the economy and the, the politics of the country and the government in France through, you know, Macron before have been willing to make statements about, yes, we have to get out of coal. We cannot continue in this. Mm. But I think more than anything, it's because it's a long time since coal was important in, in France, you know, that when the seventies, when they started their big nuclear build out and right. build off coal there. So credit agricole then is the sort of, let's say best in show. What does that mean? Like what, what does their coal commitment uh, look like? Yeah. I mean, the things we look at, you know, the very basic thing is yet strong policy saying no to any project finance. So that's like the very basic right. uh, entry to having a, a good coal policy. The second thing we look at is developers. Are you financing companies that are developing new coal projects? The other thing, this issue of definitions, you know, thresholds for what is a coal company. There's yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, what counts as a coal company? Is it is it the fifty percent in coal? Ten <laughs> five? What what's what's agricole say? I think credit agricole now is down to ten percent of, of mm. revenue, but there, there's various ways. You know, as various other thresholds can be used. For example, and better actually is is absolute thresholds so how many tons of coal are you mining or how many gigawatts are you producing then the other issue the other really important issue is phase out plans do you have plans to phase out all your financing of coal which is aligned with this one and a half degree trajectory which is basically 2030 for all your investments in the oecd and 2040 worldwide and credit agricole is one of those companies that that is committing to that and they didn't get there instantly you know mm. it wasn't the first draft they they signed the equator principles in 2003 and then in in 2012 they started i believe first of all it was about you know withdrawing support for mountaintop removal and this is this is the way it's starting over in, on the, on the oil and gas side no arctic drilling right. so they'll start by by getting out of the most extreme things and then activists keep coming back and saying, you got to tighten it and you got to tighten it. And I think Credit Agricole tightened it in 2015. They tightened it again in 2016. They tightened it again in 2019. So I think if people at banks are really serious, they have to establish a dialogue with the activists or keep a dialogue going and they have to be willing to keep tightening it and not have a, you know, a window dressing policy. Mostly we've been talking about financing new coal plants, which is you know obviously bad. <laughs> IPCC says no more, can't build any more coal plants uh, if you want to reach 1.5C. So that's a pretty clear-cut case from the activist point of view. Like, just don't finance those projects. Don't finance the companies that are financing those projects. It seems like a clear ask. But, of course, all over the world, there are existing already built coal plants. And the IPCC also says if we want to hit 1.5, we've got to close those rapidly, <laughs> uh, let's say faster than their natural retirement cycle. So how does that play into this? Is this part of the criteria to get in GFANS and stuff like this? Like how, what, what are the sort of asks from activists regarding just financing of existing coal? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the phase out criteria. So what mm. we demand, for example, from investors is to say, okay, if, if you're investing in a company, buying its bonds or you know, buying its shares, you have to make sure that that company has a plan that it's going to shut down all its coal capacity by 2040 at the very latest in 2030 in wealthy countries. 
And if they are, do not have that commitment, they should not be invested in that company. And beyond that, there's also other things they need to do to ensure that they actually are forcing decarbonization to happen. So for example, they should not allow companies to just sell off their coal assets to other companies. Right, right. Because then it's just a shell game and the emissions are passed from one actor to another, but they don't go down. So it's really important that basically the investors ensure that these coal companies have plans to shut down their plants and, you know, they have a timetable so that you can monitor how quickly and when they're supposed to be shutting down. And you can then, you know, focus on the just transition in terms of having timetables so that local communities and unions know, local governments know what the timetable is going to be and can prepare for it and can, you know, enter into negotiations with the company about how it's going to be done. So as ever with all this stuff, you look down into the, the details, it gets pretty complicated, but yes, top line, clearly finance does have an important role to play in shutting down assets. And there is a lot of discussion within GFANS and they're working on various recommendations and guidelines on basically how to ensure that companies do transition. And, you know, if they were to follow the race to zero, they would be forcing this transition to happen. But there's a long way to go from GFANS putting out a general recommendation to one of its financial institution members actually taking that seriously and basically putting the screws on a company to say, okay, this is what you got to do or we'll pull out. And, you know, if it's a very small investor, they're not going to have influence. But if it's a a very large investor, a BlackRock or a a Vanguard, they really could have influence. Uh, Unfortunately, yeah. BlackRock and Vanguard are not appearing too interested in this at the moment. (laughs) So if I'm a company that gets 50 plus percent of my revenue from coal, this seems sort of borderline existential to me, (laughs) right? Like the threat to my very life. Whereas if I'm getting five to 10% of my revenue from coal, you know, you can sort of imagine shifting away from that and going on. Oh, not at all. You know, I mean, those companies that get most of their outside the mining sector, obviously, but those companies that get more than, you know, 50% of their money from coal are are mostly utilities and they are transitioning away from coal and they can transition Mm. away from coal. In fact, it's probably better for their bottom line to rapidly transition away from coal, given how quickly the alternatives are dropping in price. So, you know, it's not asking them to commit corporate suicide at all. (laughs) <laughs> for the for the diversified mining companies, you know, many of them have already, the large ones have already moved away from coal to some extent. Right. You know, the progress of the anti-coal movement has been a pretty reliable source of good news <laughs> in an otherwise grim world <laughs> for the past couple of decades. And it's just like moved faster than I, than I thought it would. Like coal's, you know, social license it seems to be evaporating, right? Like nobody wants to be publicly associated with it except for right-wing lunatics in the U.S. But it does seem like it's losing its social license. But like I said earlier, like going beyond the project finance thing to the corporate underwriting thing to really say we will not invest any money in any company that's got anything to do with coal is a very big deal, a very big further step. Do you think that's going to, happen? <laughs> is, that a, is that a realistic goal? Like, do you feel like progress is being made? We're heading there or are we starting to hit a wall? Sort of like, what's the, what's your sense of this kind of the momentum of, of this? That's a difficult question to answer. You know, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which is, uh, it's sort of obvious to people who invested in coal 
say 15 years ago, coal equities lost 97% of their value when, when <laughs> coal had a, a very big slump. And that should have already made the case. So if coal is on the way out, it is really good business to get away as far away from coal as possible as any financial institution, as any institutional investor. And a lot of it is, you know, sort of moving down the food chain towards private equity, et cetera. But I mean, I think that a lot of what's been moving things so quickly isn't really the environmental movement at all, but it's it's the dramatic reduction in renewables. And those put the handwriting on the wall that, you know, coal survived sort of like uh, came back to life after all that. Many companies went bankrupt and they shed a lot of their liabilities. Yeah. And it seems to be having a bit of a bounce right now, too. It has, it has its bounces, but... Is this really where, where you think your money should be sitting you know, in, in the year 2050? And I, I don't think so, whether you care about the environment or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear for the coal industry what the direction of travel is. It's just a question of what's the speed mm. and what's the speed where, right. you know, what's the speed in the US, what's the speed in India, and what's the speed in China. But just on the finance side, I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful, um, the rate at which new policies come out is pretty impressive. And as, as Ted was saying earlier, it's not just new institutions adopting policies, but it's institutions that had older policies, you know, every couple of years tightening them. And so the, you know, I think the screw is tightening on them over time. And, and there's also, I think, a synergistic sort of impact, the sort of virtual spiral where you buy, you have, you know, a big bank tightens its policies and then some investors look at that and they think, okay, if this client's going to have to pay more and more for its capital, it's probably not a good place for us to put our money. So maybe, yeah, we can tighten our policy and get some kudos for doing that and we'll put less money into into coal. And then the insurers are then, you know, sort of emboldened to think, okay, well, we can tighten our insurance policies or we should because a company which is declining is not a good insurance risk because they're not they're less likely to invest in safety and you know keeping everything operating properly so yeah the trends are all positive of course they need to speed up and all these policies need to be stricter i mean and this is like michael bloomberg and mark carney you know a top an organization that represents 40 percent of the world's uh, finance these are not dirty hippies anymore, right? These are, this is not the Sierra Club no. uh, marching outside your coal plant anymore uh, yeah, at all. absolutely. No, and, you know, and finance is, a, you know, it's a conservative, you know, in so many different ways. It's conservative, you know, social institution that moves as a herd. And so <laughs> right. I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of it is about the herd is starting to feel that things are moving. And then when the herd moves, it makes stampede pretty quickly. Yeah, right. So if you're a red state Attorney General, or you're a conservative generally, I think probably you are looking at this and saying, you are dragging banks into politics and banks, you know, these financial institutions shouldn't be involved in politics. And this is not the proper, uh, they're not, not their proper role. But Ted, in your report, you um, made what I thought was an interesting analogy, which is what banks and big financial institutions did when Russia invaded Ukraine. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. And that's a uh, you know, it's hard to imagine a more political, you know what I mean, a more political uh, a reaction. Right. Well, several several banks moved very quickly uh, following the invasion and, uh, you know, changed their policies, you know, virtually within days. Often when, when you hear them, you know, respond to uh, initiatives around climate, they drag their feet and they talk about how hard it is to make that kind of change. So it was <laughs> a really good example of what they can do when they're when they want to. 
we see this in so many ways around climate that um, it's not seen as a uh, a priority. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of lip service, et cetera. There isn't really the sense that it it matters at all. And so, you know, how do you how do you change that? That's the big question. Right, and uh, and uh, it seems like controlling the money flows <laughs> is kind of that's how you get people to take it seriously. Yeah, and also just quickly to add, you know. Not surprisingly, uh, coming from red states would be a little facile to say that banks should not play a role in politics. You know, since Alexander Hamilton set up the Bank of New York, I think banks in this country have been tied in with the political system. And to think that like Jamie Dimon and and J.P. Morgan Chase are not involving themselves in political. Right, right. Carefully apolitical, those guys. (laughs) Yeah, I think when when people say, "Oh, this is just politics," they don't mean politics versus non-politics. They mean this is a political issue. I don't give a crap about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much. I have been meaning to try to sort of catch up on the coal, you know, the global coal situation for a long time. So this is very helpful and uh, and even uh, optimistic. Strange presence here on Volts. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate you guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks. That was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.